Now, we've just heard that reading read out. I, I think it's probably the, um, the darkest, most difficult, most disturbing passage that I've ever had to um, prepare a sermon on and, and about to preach on. Last week, if you were here, you know, that was hard enough. We saw the horrific abuse of power of David over Bathsheba and Uriah. But at least last week, we saw David's repentance, right? He said, I have sinned against the Lord. Did you notice there was no repentance in these verses at all? At least last week, we had the prophet of God, Nathan, you know, bringing the word of God to David. This is evil, what you've done in the Lord's eyes. Did you notice there is no mention of God at all in this chapter? It is really dark. It is very disturbing. I don't know if you're aware that each week on this bulletin we put a little verse at the, the back just to give a sort of summary of the passage which the sermon's going to be preached on. Maybe we highlight an element of the character of God or work of Christ, you know, hope of the gospel. You'll see this week, it's just blank. There's nothing there. I mean, I was thinking, what, what, what verse do you pick here? It is so dark. It is so disturbing. And, you know, it's been deeply uncomfortable for me um, preparing it this week, reading it over and over again, meditating on it. And I know that for some of you here, you know, this is going to make incredibly painful listening. This is personal to you. And so as you read this, you might be thinking to yourself, asking the question, not just of the passage, but your very lived experience, like, where is God? What does he say about this? And where is hope and help and healing to be found. I want to assure us all that it is there. Even if it's not easy to see at first, to feel or to believe, it is there. So let's come uh, to the verses now. Let's come carefully. Let's come sensitively. Let's do so remembering what we saw last week. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, says the Lord. Out of your own household, David, I'm going to bring calamity. Calamity for what you have done to Bathsheba and Uriah. And we see the calamity played out here in horrific fashion through his sons, through the family, as sin just gets worse and worse and worse. Amnon, Jonadab, Absalom, David... And we need to learn the lesson from each of them. First then, Amnon. And his twisted, perverse, false love. Look down with me at verse 1. We're on page 316. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Adnan became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. And so here we're introduced to Amnon, son of David. That's King David. David, who we've seen already throughout this series, has taken two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, many wives to himself, who has taken another man's wife to himself. And like father, like son, Amnon has this lust problem too becomes so obsessed with his sister, a sister he's meant to protect and care for as a brother, but actually ends up wanting to do anything to her. And let's be absolutely clear, that is not love, is it? That is lust. 
Love does not want to do things to people, but for people. Love is sacrificial. Love lays its life down for another person. Love never forces itself on another person. So obsessed does Anmon become with Tamar, he makes himself ill. Surely that was a sign to him that something was wrong, that he was letting his passions get the better of him, taking over him, twisting, perverting him. But he just keeps going, he just keeps going. Perhaps Amnon reasoned, you know, as many people do today, you know, you've got to follow your heart, you've got to go for your feeling. How can desire so strong ever be wrong? They are clearly wrong here. He rapes her and then hates her. This is not love. It is anything but. Do you know the difference between love and lust? He may say he loves you, but if he keeps pushing the boundaries with you, if he says he just can't keep his hands off you, if he tells you about all the things he wants to do to you, be very, very careful. Love is patient. It waits. Love is kind, gentle, tender-hearted. Love does not seek its own interests. Love always protects. Love does what is best for the other person, not for themselves. Can you say that about him? Do we make it a daily routine, a regular habit, to say no to our our selfish desires within? You know something of that, that dynamic in your heart, in your life? No, that is wrong, that desire. No matter how strong it is, no matter how much you think it's love, if that desire goes against God's desire, it is wrong. We live in a society which encourages us to say yes to all of our desires. And look, there are many desires which are good, they are godly, they are God-glorifying, they seek the good of others. God's common grace at work in us. If we're a Christian, God's spirit, the sign of God's spirit at work. But there are some desires that you cannot trust. There are some desires you must not listen to. There are some desires which you have to say no to. No matter how small or horrific things can happen. Did you know that last year saw the highest number of rapes ever recorded in England and Wales? Now, there could be many reasons for that. It could be due to population growth. It could be more people are reporting these things nowadays. But could it also be that we are allowing, raising a nation of Amnons who simply don't know when and how to say no to their desires? Their, unse- their selfish desires, their ungodly desires. Do you, do you know in your heart when to say yes and when to say no? Well, if that's Amnon in verses 1 to 2, secondly in verses 3 to 5, we meet Jonadab. Amnon's advisor, and we meet his advisor, and we think, great, he's got an advisor, he's got someone who can speak truth into his life, come alongside him, pray for him, point out scripture to him. Say to him, what on earth are you thinking? 
Instead, in verse 3, what do we read? Now, Amnon had an advisor named Jonadab, son of Shemaiah, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Amnon, why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I'd like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. Did you notice Jonadab here is described as a very shrewd man? That is a shrewdness from the Lord. That is a God-given wisdom. He knows the law. He knows how to point people in right and wrong. What does he do with it? Does he use his shrewdness to serve the Lord? No, he doesn't. He could have held his cousin Amnon to account. He could have caught That's not love. That's lust. What are you doing? That's twisted. That's perverse. Get that thought out of your head. Jonahab could have stopped it all right there and then. And he doesn't. Instead, he uses his shrewdness in service of himself. He affirms Amnon in his feelings, devises this wicked plan, deceitful, pretending to be ill, and sets it all up for him so that Amnon can do what he wants to her. Now, we're not told why Jonadab does this. I don't know. Perhaps he wants to remain in Amnon's good, good books. Perhaps he thinks, you know, he's being polite and kind and non-judgmental for, you know, holding back. Perhaps he just cares about his own comfort and approval before others instead of actually doing what is best for the person and certainly for Tamar. But the damage and destruction that is caused from his actions here It's been said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Perhaps it's appropriate that the word men is used there. Given how everything plays out in this chapter, and all four men we're going to see get it all spectacularly wrong. Beware being the friend or advisor that only ever says what the other person wants to hear. I'm told Putin's advisors only tell him what he wants to hear. We can see the utter carnage and destruction that has come from that. We've just found out this week that Wayne Cousins, four counts before of indecent exposure, did anyone get alongside him and say, what are you doing? That is wrong. That has got to stop. Turn from that. Those desires must be crushed before he went on to murder Sarah Everard. Let it not be so for us as a church. Let's be good friends. Let's be good advisors. And that will mean sometimes confronting and challenging and saying no. What you're thinking is wrong. What you're feeling is wrong. And it's not love. We think it is. Not according to God's standard, it's not. It's difficult to do. It's difficult to confront and challenge, right? It's so much easier to listen, to empathize, to come alongside. You want to be a good friend. You want to be a good advisor. Sometimes you have to push in. Gently, graciously, of course. We need to do it, though. The Apostle James writes at the end of his epistle in the New Testament, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and a multitude of sins. 
Please, please, Lord, would we be a church like that. Well, Jonadab is not like that, and Amnon goes along with his plan, and now we're introduced to Tamar in verses 6 to 19. I mean, Tamar, this kind, servant-hearted woman, this caring, loyal sister. We're told in verse 8, she goes to the house of her brother, she makes some dough, she kneads it, she makes this bread, bakes it, she takes the pan, serves him. If we want a picture of sacrificial love, doing good for others... Serving others, here it, but in verse nine, Amnon sends everyone out the room and we the reader thinking, don't do it, Amnon. Then Amnon says to Tamar, bring the food here into my bedroom, which she diligently does. But the moment she brings it to him, Amnon grabs her hand and says, come to bed with me, my sister. I mean, I just don't know what that must have been like. I can't begin to imagine to have someone hold you who's more powerful physically than you. You can't escape. When you hear the words come out of his mouth and what he wants to do to you. She screams in verse 12, no, my brother. Seven times she protests. No, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? What about you? You'd be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will keep me from being married. I don't think she's wanting to marry. I just think she's thinking, get the king. Get someone. Get, any, get me out of here. But verse 14, he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. It is hell on earth. It is horrific to the core. And the ordeal ordeal is not yet over for Tamar. She's re-abused in verses 15 to 18. Get up and get out. No, she says, this would be like a greater wrong. But he refused to listen to her. Verse 16, same thing again. He refused to listen to her. Yet get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. This poor, poor woman. Left in mourning in verse 19. This beautiful sister. Now now left in tatters, literally. Ashes on her head, her robe torn. But emotionally, psychologically, mentally, spiritually in tatters too, weeping aloud as she went. How how can we not weep with her? And not just with her, but weep with all the other Tamars in the church whose own stories have come to like over these past five years since the Me Too movement. And for those who you and I no personally. So woe to us if this passage does not increase in us a deeper hatred and abhorrence for all forms of sexual violence. Woe to us if this passage does not move in us a deeper compassion and concern and care for anyone who has suffered like this. Perhaps you're a Tamar here today and you are nervous about bringing this into the light because historically, and women have often been blamed, deliberately or inadvertently. Well, she must have enjoyed the attention of her brother. 
Well, if she's going to dress like that, I mean, if she's going to let herself go all alone with another man, if she's going to walk home late, Tamar did nothing wrong. Let's weep with her. Let's weep with all the Tamars we know. And if that's you, please, please, if you've not had a chance to bring it into the light, do so with a female member of staff or a female friend or Judith, our safeguarding officer. That's Tamar. Next up is Absalom, Tamar's brother. This is verses 20 to 29. Absalom is silent when he should speak up, and he speaks up when he should be silent. Verse 20. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister, he's your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. Now look, I admit, I've said some stupid, insensitive things as a brother to my sister in the past over the years. I'm sure we've all done that as siblings. But what is Absalom thinking here? Do you notice how he minimizes what's happened? Ask the question, has that Amnon been with you? No, Absalom. She's just been raped by him. Silencing Tamar. Be quiet for now. He's your brother. No, Absalom, you never silence these things. The fact that he's her brother, it makes it even worse. It's not just rape, it's incest. Speak up for her. Don't silence her. I don't even know what to say about his final comment. Don't take this thing to heart. As if, you know, it's just no big deal, really. Even though he can see her weeping, hear it, just see her state of, like, just total desolation. It's just wicked. Absalom is silent when he should speak up, and then in verses 23 to 29, Absalom speaks up when he should be silent as he orders his men on the sly to murder Amnon a few years later taking justice into his own hands. Now, we, we might look at Absalom and we think, you know, how could he act like that? But then how often have we kept silent when we should have spoken up? Or instead of speaking up and addressing the issue, you know, with the person directly, or if that's inappropriate, addressing it through the right processes and then just leave it in the hands and the right prayer, be patient with them and instead take justice into our own hands. Letting a root of bitterness set in, gossiping about what has happened, seeking to derail the person, undermine them through other means and in so doing become the very thing we're fighting against. Nisha very famously said, whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process they do not become a monster. Or as the Apostle Paul says to the church in Galatia, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Let me make an application of this into the area of domestic abuse. It could be a close friend, confidant, confides in you about what's happened. And because, you know, as Christians, we uphold and respect the institution of marriage. We know how much God hates divorce. It could be that instinctively you want to encourage the spouse to go back to their partner, to their spouse. 
If it's a wife, you say, you know, go back to the husband, love him, forgive him, win him over with your, with your life. Without words. Or it's a husband, you say, oh, come on, man up. Lead her, love her, forgive her, but go back to her. No. We need to bring this sort of abuse, domestic abuse, into the light, not try to minimize it, silence it, but speak up about it. Which brings us finally to David. Great King David, a man after God's heart. What's he going to do in this chapter when everything's going wrong around him? Is he going to speak up for things? Is he going to do things? Is he going to take action? What do you think? What does David do? Anything? Nothing. Verse 6. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill when the king came to see him. That's King David. Amnon said to him, I'd like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so that I may eat from her hand. Now, does David think to himself, that's odd. Amnon was perfectly fine this morning. Why is, he, why is he ill in bed suddenly? Wonder what's gone on there. And what's this thing about his sister and wanting his sister to come and to eat from her hand? That is odd. I might ask him about that. No, nothing. Doesn't say anything, doesn't do anything, doesn't suspect anything and instead gives in to his son's demands in verse 7. In verse 21, when King David heard about all this, that is all that Amnon had just done to Tamar, he was furious. Okay, get that. He's, far, he's the father. Of course he's furious. What does he do next? Does he confront Amnon? Does he bring judgment as God's king to Amnon? Does he speak to Amnon in the way that Nathan spoke to him as the prophet of God? Nothing. He gets furious, and then verse 22, oh, and Absalom never said a word to anyone. Verse 23, two years later. Says nothing, does nothing. Same again after Absalom murders Amnon. Three times we're told in verses 34, 37, 38, Absalom fled for effect. To say, look, David, you had your opportunity, you had your opportunity. Go bring justice to the situation. Does nothing. And three years now pass, end of verse 38. That's five years in total. David does not comfort his daughter, does not discipline his sons, does not bring justice as king. He is completely silent and completely inactive. The one person who is meant to bring justice into the situation as God's king. And we're left asking the question, well, look, who's going to speak up for Tamar? And all the Tamars in the world today, who's going to right these horrific wrongs? Who's going to bring true justice where it's needed? And we come to this end of this chapter, chapter 13, and we think there's no one. It's not coming from Amnon. It's not coming from Jonadab. It's not coming from Absalom. It's not coming from David. So who is it coming from? Is there any? Yes, there is someone. There is one person who is not silent. Do you know who he is? You might, you might miss him at first. He's not mentioned in this chapter. That's not because he's not there. God sees everything. He's not there because this is showing you what life is like when you lose sight of God, when you live without God, when you forget his purposes, his good purposes, his desires. It's just, you see just the mess that just happens. But who's the one writing this story? Who is the one including Tamar's story in his story? Who is the one who has a story that finds its climax in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? 
the one person who never did anything wrong, not for a millisecond in his existence, and yet had unspeakable evil committed against him. Jesus Christ was betrayed by his closest friend. Jesus Christ was physically violated, spat upon, beaten, pierced. Jesus was hated by the very ones he came to save. Jesus died for Tamar, and Jesus Christ died for all those who repent and trust in him. And not only that, Jesus Christ is coming back. Do you know how he is described? One of the ways he's described in Revelation 19, let me read this to you. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. That is who Jesus is. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And on his robe and on his thigh is this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords, be in no doubt, justice is coming. For all the Amnons, all the Jonadabs, all the Absaloms, and all the Davids who do not repent and trust in him, justice is coming. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He's the one we all need. He's the one saver and judge we can all trust. His love is a pure one. His justice a perfect one. His righteousness an eternal one. Hope, help, healing can be found with him. So let's come to Jesus. Come to him now. Come to him for forgiveness. For all the times we've kept silent when we should have spoken up. For all the times we've been complicit in other people's sin. For all the times we've not loved God and other people with a pure love. Come to him. He willingly, freely forgives you. But let's also come to him for justice not taking matters into our own hands, not letting a root of bitterness set in, not despairing when it feels like we're not gonna see any justice in this life, it is coming and you can be sure of it as surely as Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. To be a Christian is to be a, be a part of his story, history, God's story. And that is a story that always ends well. So let's abhor hate the darkness of this chapter, the darkness of human sin. Let's fight it with all of God's strength. But let's also love even more everything that Jesus is, his light, his glory. Love him more and more and let his love shine through you, your hearts, your lives, as we go out in the week ahead. Let me pray that for us now. Let's pray. Father God, these are, this is a really dark chapter, but you give it to us. You give it to us in your word to show that you see everything and ultimately you will judge everything. So we see just nature and sin just spiraling out of control here through these different characters. Humble us, move us to repentance, where we see similar things going on for us. Help us to say no to ungodly, selfish desires, but help us as well to see in the darkness of this chapter the light of Christ, the beauty of him, 
the forgiveness he offers, the justice he brings. Help us to love him more and more as we hate sin more and more. And do your work in our lives, we ask, in the week ahead. For Jesus' sake, amen.